At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Let's continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures this morning. We are in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to follow along. Pretty easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. And we're especially looking at verses 10 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. And we're especially studying Genesis not all the way through, but we're particularly looking at the different family dynamics as they play out in the book of Genesis. We looked at Adam and Eve. We looked at Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. And today we're looking at another very important couple, uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, We're going to hear them referred to as Abram and Sarai uh, because at this point in their history, God hadn't renamed them to Abraham and Sarah yet, but it's still the same couple, so you don't get confused. I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah, but mostly in the scriptures here, they're referred to as Abram and Sarai. And this is a very important chapter in the story of Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, are what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Those three verses, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, contain the foundational promises upon which the rest of the narrative of Scripture unfolds, and God fulfills those promises. So those few verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, function in many ways like the Declaration of Independence functions for the United States. That document and those words formed us as a people. Well, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, forms Abraham and his descendants who would eventually become the nation of Israel. Those are the foundational promises that make them who they are, so to speak. And in these promises, God uh, tells Abraham, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation, meaning I'm going to give you many, many, many descendants. I'm going to give you many children and grandchildren all the way down till you become a great nation. He also gives Abraham land. He calls him away from his home country and says, I'm going to give you a specific piece of land. You can still go visit it today. It's on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. It's known as the nation of Israel and also Palestine. He promises him children. He promises him land. And then he says, I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendants. In other words, I'm going to undo the curse of sin through the nation of Israel, through your descendants. So these are important and foundational promises in the story of Scripture. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Very quickly, God starts to fulfill these promises. Already in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God has called Abraham away from his home country leads him to a new country, and it says in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God leads Abram to the promised land and says to you and your offspring, I give this land here on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. However, what we're going to see is Abraham's narrative start to play out, and these promises come into all sorts of tension and trouble and circumstances that make us wonder, man, how are these promises, in fact, going to be fulfilled? Um, And especially as it relates to Abraham's struggle with faith. So let's look into this 
family situation, this dynamic that can apply to our own lives in some really powerful ways. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say to us, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, Sarai, was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abram. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even though we associate the name Michael Jordan with basketball greatness, one of the most well-known stories about him is that he got cut from his JV basketball team in ninth grade. And even though we associate the name Steve Jobs and Apple with technological greatness, It's also well remembered that at one point, Jobs was fired from Apple in 1995, and at a later point, Apple just missed having to file bankruptcy in 1997. And even though we associate the name Abraham Lincoln with political and presidential greatness, again, it's well recorded that previously he'd lost numerous elections, both on the state and national level. Well, there's another well-known Abraham whose life was a similarly ironic paradox. The Abraham who we find in the pages of Scripture. He is the OG patriarch of Israel. He is famously known as the father of the faith. But even though we associate Abraham with spiritual greatness and profound faith, what we find out in this story and what we see in today's Scripture is that the fear of is that fear often motivated Abraham more than faith. And I don't mean the fear of God or reverence toward God. No, the fear of man, the fear of circumstances, often motivated Abraham more than faith. Even though he's this spiritual giant, even though he's the father of the faith, he oftentimes gives into fear and makes decisions motivated by fear. So what we learn here is that the life of faith is a fight with fear. And sometimes, even the best of us, the best of us, Father Abraham, sometimes we get knocked down in this fight. So as we look at part of Abraham's experience, what we're asking ourselves this morning is, how is fear impacting your life with God? 
Where is fear showing up in your life and holding you back from fulfilling God's purpose and God's design for your life? So let's look at Abraham's experiences and see how it can speak to us. And we can discern here at least two different fears and how they were impacting God's purpose for Abraham. So first, he fears the famine and settles in Egypt, leaving behind the promise of land. So this is a fear of circumstances, right? The circumstances of Abraham's life get difficult. And something within him evaluates this situation as scary. He feels fear and he responds to the difficult situation in light of his fear instead of faith. So what is that difficult thing? Of course, as I mentioned, it's this famine. Verse 10 says that now there was a famine in the land. The famine was severe in the land. So this probably wasn't just a dry month. This was severe. So it was probably an extended season or multiple extended seasons maybe even where there's no rain. And if there's no rain, there's no food. That's how you get a famine. Now, in one sense, we can say that this is an understandably scary situation. Not having food means that you are not going to have life. So I don't think that we can judge Abraham for feeling fear at this point. In fact, I think we can say that it's healthy and normal that he has some sense of fear of this famine. So similarly, if you're hanging out on the railroad tracks just to the north of us here, and you hear a locomotive coming your way, it's an understandable thing to feel fear and take the action of stepping away, stepping far away from the tracks. Well, likewise with this famine. It's an understandably fearful thing, and Abraham needs to respond, but what will his response be? Is his response motivated more by fear or faith? Well, listen again to verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abraham goes down to Egypt, and this is an understandable choice because Egypt has this decent-sized stream that keeps the land irrigated, helping with crops. I'm just kidding, it's not decent-sized. It's big, it's the biggest, the Nile River. Egypt has the Nile, so even during a dry, famished season, Egypt has this solid resource of the great river Nile. However, Abraham is not just going to Egypt. The language indicates here that he is staying in Egypt. You look closer, it says that Abraham went down to Egypt and sojourned there. And this idea of sojourning is the same idea as immigrating, meaning that Abraham is looking for a new home. So it's one thing to take a trip somewhere. It's one thing to seek temporary relief. But Abraham is, ty- Abraham is taking the kind of trip where you don't necessarily return. In fact, different translations of this verse say Abraham went down to Egypt to settle there. Because the idea of sojourning indicates settling down, putting down roots. But you remember chapter 12, verse 7. I read it earlier on. God promised Abraham land. And he led him to that land. And in chapter 12, verse 7, God says to him, To your offspring, I give you this land. But Abraham, fearing the famine, he settles down in Egypt, leaving behind 
the promise of land. So it's one thing to fear the famine, but it's a whole other thing for that fear to pull you away from God's purpose and God's promises for your life. Let me say that again because it is perfectly true for us as well. It is one thing to fear the famine, but it is another thing for that fear to pull you away from God's purposes and promises for your life. So church, let's ask ourselves, what fearful circumstance has come into your life causing you to pull back from God's purpose and calling on your life? What's a situation you're facing that's scary and God's calling you to move forward, but fear is pulling you back? Well, one thing that immediately comes to my mind relates to the state of our economy. It's obviously pretty shaky. Many say that we're already well into a recession. So, for example, this fearful financial situation could cause us to pull back from God's design for us to be generous. In Scripture, God clearly calls us to sacrificial generosity. For the sake of the poor, for the sake of the church, God's purpose is for us to share generously. The clearest instance of this in Scripture, and one that just totally blows my kids' mind around Christmas, is when Jesus says, it's better to give than receive. Like when I tell my kids that around Christmas time, their minds just sort of short out, like pop, pop, pop. They just can't. What, what? Yeah. It is better, Jesus says, to give away your resources than for you to receive more resources. God's purpose is for us to share generously. But will this fearful financial situation cause us to pull back. It's one example. But way ahead of financial fears, way ahead of financial fears, according to a study by Chapman University, way ahead of financial fears is the fear of corrupt government officials. In fact, for six years in a row, surveyed Americans showed that the top fear in this country is corrupt government Officials, Man, how American of us, right? From King George forward, we just do not trust these guys. Like, it's just built into us. Now, hey, are there corrupt politicians? Sure. Is this a legitimate fear? Sure. But are we allowing that fear to cause us to pull back from God's clear call on our lives to be humbly submissive to governing authorities, even pagan authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Romans chapter 13, in these passages, God clearly calls us to respectful, humble submission to the authorities. But that's my concern as I observe this play out, that our fear of corrupt politicians causes us to pull back from joyful confidence in the sovereign Lord. I mean, do we know the King of Kings or not? Do we know one whose throne will not be shaken or not? If we do, what are we afraid of? 
What do we feel like we get to get all riled up about and angry about? The sovereign Lord laughs at the nations and they're plotting against him. And here we all are down here pulling our hair out because what some puny politician might do to us. Come on. Is our fear of corrupt politicians causing us to pull back from joyful confidence in the sovereign Lord and to pull back from humble submission to those who God places in power? That's my concern as one of your pastors. Just on my radar as things are playing out in our world today, this financial situation and this political situation. The survey says the fear is there. What are we going to do with our fear? How are we going to respond to it? Abraham's a good lesson for us. But it could be any number of things, finances and politics aside. It could be any number of things. Take a moment. Reflect on your life, your family, work, church, friends, ministry, economy, politics, relationships, finances. Where is fear cropping up? What situations are you afraid of and how is it holding you back? from fulfilling God's calling and purpose for your life. It's what Abraham can teach us. We can use Scripture as a hammer and as a sword to bash our enemies, or we can use Scripture as a mirror to look at ourselves, as James chapter 1 says. And that's what we need, to use Abraham as a mirror for our own lives and say, where is that same kind of fear pulling me back? from God's purpose. For Abraham, as great as he would become, as great as he would become, he feared the famine, he settled down in Egypt, and he left behind God's promise of land right out of the gate. Secondly, as we move forward, he also fears the Pharaoh. He lies about Sarah, and he leaves behind the promise of children. So the famine was a circumstance or life situation that Abraham feared, but the second one is a little different. It's a person or persons that he fears. In verse 11, as they're traveling to Egypt, Abraham shares this plan with Sarah. Abraham's plot. He shares it with his wife, Sarah. He says, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. I know when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is Abraham's wife. And then they're going to kill me, but they'll let you live. So Abraham comes up with this deceitful plot. Instead, they're going to tell the Egyptians that Sarah is just his sister, not his wife. And the idea is that if they see Sarah, think she's beautiful, and they want to present Sarah to Pharaoh, but they see that Abraham is married to Sarah, well, they may kill Abraham in order to make her an eligible bachelorette. But... If they don't know that Sarah is married to Abraham, if they just think that he is her brother, well, then they may still take Sarah to Pharaoh, but hey, at least they won't kill Abraham. So this seems kind of self-serving on Abraham's part, but certainly putting themselves in this position was not in service to the promise of God. God's promise was that Abraham would have many descendants, that they would be a greatly numbered, numerous nation, 
But by settling in Egypt, by essentially letting the future matriarch be taken in by Pharaoh, the promise of all these descendants is in dire jeopardy. Abraham feared the Egyptians. He feared Pharaoh, so he acted deceitfully, not trusting that God would protect this promised mama. And again, there is some legitimacy to this fear. Abraham and Sarah are immigrants, and immigrants very often have a tough time being foreigners in a strange land. They don't know the language or the customs. They don't look the same. They're easy to take advantage of. So in many ways, Abraham's fear is understandable. But again, to lie about who they were, to put his wife in danger, to not trust that God would protect them, this was allowing his fear to cause him to make some foolish and faithless decisions. So similar to before, we have to ask about ourselves. Who are you afraid of? Who is it in your life that causes you to feel fear? This is one idea. Maybe it's someone that God has called you to minister to. Maybe it's someone that God has called you to share the gospel with. And man, your heart aches for this person. You want them to know the Lord. You want to share with them Jesus. But what if they reject me? What if they say I'm an idiot or a bigot or a fool? What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? I'll look like an idiot. That's one way the fear of man can crop up in our lives. Another one, maybe your fear relates to people in opening up in Christian community. Maybe your fear of people relates to really getting honest with some brothers and sisters about your struggle. You need people to know, really know what's going on in your heart. You need some brothers and sisters to know the real you. Brokenness, sin, struggles, and all. But you're afraid. I can't share that. They'll reject me. They'll think I'm unworthy. They'll think I'm too broken. They'll think I'm not good enough. So you deal with the fear by being fake, by wearing a mask, by having surfacey relationships. And that fear of rejection from people causes us to not walk in the light. That fear of rejection holds us back from being who God made us to be. It holds us back from living in honesty and openness about who we really are and what we're really going through. Pastor and counselor Ed Welch, he has a book about the fear of man. And the title of the book sort of says it all. The book is titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. When people are big and God is small. For Abraham, Pharaoh was big. Pharaoh was powerful, the king, and God, well, I mean, I know we made these promises, but, or the person you're trying to share the gospel with, but feeling the fear of man, man, they are big, they are scary big, able to reject us, able to hurt us, and God, well, I know he's called me to this, and I know he's God, but I'm afraid. 
or the people that you need to open up to, the Christian friends that you need to share with about yourself. Man, they are big. Man, they are towering. If they really knew me, they could reject me, hurt me. But God, the one who calls me to live in community, the one who calls me to walk in the light, he's small. He's not enough to make up for my insecurities, my fears. People are big, and God is small. So even Father Abraham, even the founder of the faith, the father of the faith, this unanimous inductee into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, even he struggles, stumbles, falters in his life of faith. Just a few verses after, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right out of the gate, he falls on his face. And on the one hand, this should encourage us. Abraham's struggle should encourage us, but it mean, because it means that in your struggle with faith, you are not alone. From Adam forward, we are all broken. We are all needy. There is not a single expert in Christianity. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, I am the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul, pastor, missionary, martyr, chief of sinners. I'm a broken man, he tells Timothy. So on the one hand, we should be encouraged. We are not alone in our struggle with faith. Even Father Abraham is right there beside us. But on the other hand, we should be challenged. If Abraham struggled with faith, then I am sure going to struggle with faith. So I better struggle. I better fight. I better seek God. I better go after God with everything I've got. Because we are swimming upstream in the life of faith. We are in spiritual warfare. We are not in a spiritual spa, friends. I know we've purchased these really comfortable seats. And I know we've worked really hard to control the climate and make us all feel really comfortable in here, but church, we are not in a spiritual spa. We are in spiritual warfare. And so we need to avail ourselves of every resource to keep our faith deep in God's word and keep our focus lasered on the Lord Jesus. So let's be encouraged that we are not alone in the struggle of faith but let's be challenged to struggle, to engage, to seek God, to fight fear, and mature our faith. And here's the silver lining in all of this. Here's the gospel truth that undergirds our struggle with faith. The depth of our faith is ultimately not what is most important. It's the object of our faith. That is most important. Your faith may be strong. Your faith may be weak. Your faith may be big. Your faith may be small. Ultimately, though, what matters most is not the size or strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith. And if your faith is centered on the Lord, He will ultimately come through for you no matter how often we blow it. And we blow it a lot. Amen? Because look what happens at the end of this narrative. Pharaoh likes what he sees in Sarah. Abraham was right. 
Pharaoh likes what he sees in Sarah, and so he's going to take her into his harem. But, verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. The Lord afflicted his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God sovereignly intervenes. But the Lord steps in. So Pharaoh calls to Abram and says to Abram, what is this you have done to me? I mean, this pagan king rebukes the father of the faith. What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me she was your sister so that I took her for my wife? This pagan godless king rebukes the father of the faith for not having good morals and lying. I hope you feel the irony here. And then he sends him away. He says, take your wife and go. God sovereignly intervenes when Abraham blows it. God rescues Sarah. And God makes up for the failures of the faithless Abraham. So church, yes, we need faith. Yes, we need to fight for faith, but we need not despair because the surety of God's promises does not rest on our faith in those promises. The sure certainty of God's promises being fulfilled rests on God himself. Salvation is of the Lord, not to us, not to us, but to him be the glory. It's not ultimately about what we can do for him. It's not ultimately about our faith in him. It's about what he's done for us. It's about his faithfulness to his promises to rescue us. And the gospel, the good news is that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Not a single one of God's promises from Genesis chapter 12 forward have not been fulfilled in Christ. He promised physical land, we have a heavenly inheritance. He promised blessing, we have every blessing in the heavenly places, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Every promise is yes and amen in Christ. We can be as certain that God will keep his word as we are certain that Jesus' grave is empty. Friends, God is faithful. God is faithful to the faithless. And he's walking Abraham through this journey of faith, rebuking him through the Pharaoh, stepping in when he fails. And he does the same thing for us. He rebukes us through his word. He encourages us through friends. And he has ultimately sovereignly intervened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that we are permanently, forever saved. So church, let's reflect on the promises of God. Reflect on the promises of God. Life eternal. Redemption. Adoption. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. The endless power of the Holy Spirit that fills us. Just scan your mind over the promises of God. Reflect on all that he has promised for you in Christ. 
and let's fight for faith. Let's sink our roots deep in the gospel promises of God's word. Yes, people are big. Yes, times are tough. Yes, situations are scary. But the Lord is faithful. His word is true. And he will make a way. Our Father in heaven, we bring ourselves before you. We bring all of ourselves before you our fears, our anxieties, our doubts. God, we thank you that you are big enough, you are merciful enough to receive us in all of our brokenness, in all of our sin and shame and struggle. You're not scared, you don't pull back, you step in. We thank you, God, for this example of even Abraham, who you walked with so patiently. And man, we are just as broken, every one of us to a man. We confess that, Father. God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to help us grow in awareness of our fears, in awareness of how they're holding us back from following you obediently. Reveal those things to us, Father. And I pray that the gospel promises of your love, your grace, your power would overshadow every fear, and that you would fill this church with the kind of boldness that only heaven can give. As we face a scary diagnosis, as we face scary financial situations, as we face scary ministry opportunities, all sorts of things in the future, God, that are unknown, fearful, We pray, God, that we could walk forward, follow Christ, be full of your strength, be full of your hope, and trust that somehow, some way, you will, in your time, make a way. May it be so, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.